everyone, and welcome to another panel hosted by SheProp. Once again, I am very excited about my topic, and I am excited about the panelists that we are talking to today. This is a topic that is very near and dear to my heart, and something that I find very personal as well as, as an artist and as a crafter. We are talking about the distinction between arts and crafts, why there is a distinction, and why there probably shouldn't be. Um, but before we get into that, let's Introduce SheProp. SheProp is a growing community that is focused upon supporting, empowering, and representing female, non-binary, and transgender cosplayers, artists, and makers. You can watch these panels on the SheProp YouTube channel or listen to them on the SheProp Talk podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. If you're interested in joining us over in the SheProp community, find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and we will add links in the show notes to help you find us. We'd love to have you, and thank you so much for joining us. My name is Abby of Abby Cat Cosplay. I have been cosplaying for about six years. And this topic is very important to me because I got my start in creating as a quilter. Um, my quilting background has absolutely informed my cosplay, the way I approach it and what I value in creating cosplays. And I just think it's one of the most incredible art forms and it's very underappreciated. So I'm excited to talk about that today. Hello, I'm Nana Cosplay, Laura Lada, and um, I got started about 13 years ago in cosplay, but before that, I did about 20-something years of living history. So I've uh, got to work on all those different pioneer skills that are seriously underdepreciated because we go to reenactments and things like that. The guys would drill out in the sun with their weapons, and we would do all the hard work, which was really embroidery and spinning and all those kind of uh, wonderful crafts that are um, that really need recognition and, and can be used in cosplay. My name is Abby. Um, I am Babs Cosplay, and I've been cosplaying for about seven years now. But um, with that, I've actually, I'm a Rennie too. So we do a lot of uh, early uh, 18 and um, late 18 uh, century, you know, style clothing and, and trying to figure out uh, you know, what type of clothing was made. But my more focus was on um, people of color um, during those times because you don't really get to, you know, hear about them too much when it comes to like old England um, and everything. And so uh, this is all very important to me, especially because um, my love of different, um, you know, African cloth and uh, bringing that old culture to the new side of designs um, has been something that I've been involved in for like 20 years now. Hi, I'm Isa. I go by Evil Clever Dog in the cosplay community. I've been cosplaying for huh, about 14 years. <laughs> um, I'm primarily an armor maker and mold maker when it comes to cosplay, but I like to experiment with a lot of different things. And I've also been working as a set costume and prop designer for theatre and film for about six years now. I have a degree in design for performance and I also briefly studied fine art before that. So I've always been very interested in the way things are made and why they're made that way and what that says about the culture they come from. And for this specific topic, um, I'm interested in it in a lot of, for a lot of different reasons. Um, one of them being that as like as a woman of color who's pivoted from studying fine art to studying design performance and the job I've done um, over time, I've seen and even studied a lot of the different ways in which pieces of art and even entire art forms are appreciated or underappreciated based on 
the gender or ethnicity of the person creating said art. Um, and I think it's really interesting and important to talk about the undeniable pattern, about the way higher importance and credibility is placed upon art created by and for a white male audience, um, and what even gets to count as art in the first place. Uh, hi, my name's Ollie. Uh, I've been cosplaying for 12 years. Such a long time. Um, <clears throat> And uh, I predominantly cosplay uh, from books and things like that. I'm a sewist, most definitely a sewist. <laughs> um, but I come from a art school background as well as um, I'm a writer and a journalist. And I have just finished a book writing about the history of cosplay and pop culture. And the amount of women who are pushed to the side for their male counterparts in pop culture, we see it right up to this day in uh, modern pop culture as well as back in you know a century ago in the turn of the century um, that male artists and pop culture creators were always seen as the more serious artists and uh, that's a passion for mine to make sure that those women those people of color those working class people are represented in a way that they often aren't. Well thank you everybody so much for joining us today. We all have really good reasons to be here and to want to talk about this topic. And I am so excited to get to do this panel because I think it's so important to bring this issue to light. So let's just jump right in and ask the question currently, what is the difference between an art and a craft? So Ollie, let's start with you. So by definition, the difference between an art and a craft, as far as I'm aware of it, is that a craft is a skill that is honed and used to create things that may be beautiful, but predominantly have a function. Um, whereas art does not need to have a function as opposed to just being art, as it were. But that seems like a very narrow minded view as far as I'm concerned. I think it is uh, very hard to have art without craft in the first place. To create art, you have to have some form of skill. And I think many artists who, especially modern artists, have leaned on this idea that they will get craftspeople in to create their own idea. And I don't think that that follows through with the idea of what art should be. If you're going to emote something from somebody, which is the primary function of art, you should be able to uh, take some ownership of that in the creation of it yourself. And Issa, did you have something to add on that topic? Um, sorry. Absolutely, um, sort of in agreement with Ollie on the sort of like the distinction that is placed, but sort of I question whether the distinction is truly enough of a distinction because art by definition has to contain craft and just because an object like say a piece of pottery or a garment is something that takes a lot of craft skill to create doesn't mean you can't employ creative merit and innovation into the work to create that piece. Um, like, you know, we see amazing sort of pieces by fashion designers and um, there are artists who call themselves artists who the skill they use is embroidery or pottery. It, um, the sort of like hard line there, I feel like is actually quite limiting on what we can and can't call art. When did that hard line become the norm? When did that become the generally accepted definition or how we look at it? So in the, in the West, the, um, the distinction, well, yeah, firstly, the distinction hasn't always existed. 
Um, and in the West, this distinction really began with the Italian Renaissance. Um, and of course, it partially happened for monetary reasons, and I'll come back to that. Um, so pri like prior to the Renaissance, um, like a lot of the things that we would call art now were also considered craft. So everything from like painting to weaving was sort of considered under the same banner. Um, and the people who made those things were rarely given individual credit for their work. And often they were made by sort of collective production houses rather than individuals. Um, and interestingly, think like painters were paid by the square foot, for example. Um, and their work- uh, their Sorry work for laughing, but like, that's kind of funny. <laughs> Yeah, it's like writers being paid by the word. It's, yeah, yeah. Um, and this, that's what's happening. Writers that's are just what happens to me. Yeah, yeah. As a writer, I, I'm literally paid per word. So it's like, do you want to put more words in there? Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, the works, like the works, value was in how they denoted the social status of the patron who funded the piece. Mm -hmm. And in fact, like the patron who, it was the patron who often took credit for the works because they were created by these teams rather than by individuals. And the patron was seen as the individual who had funded and therefore created the work. Um, and what happened in the Renaissance to draw the distinction that we now commonly think of in, in the West between art and craft is that the culture began to shift to place a value on individual creativity and interpretation um, as art moved towards this sort of reinterpretation of Greek mythology and biblical imagery. Um, and then rather, being paid, rather than being paid by the square foot, painters specifically petitioned to be paid on the merit of their work instead. Mm -hmm. And this individualization of artists led in turn to a form of celebrity status for these artists. And a clear line was drawn between what works could be considered vehicles for individual artistic expression and innovation and what wasn't, creating inherent difference in artistic value between them. And it's also important to note, I think, that this, is, this happened in Europe. It did not happen in other parts of the world. And until colonialism came along. Um, and because of this, often the works of non-Western cultures are relegated, quote unquote, to being crafts and are perceived to have lesser value based on the distinction that was drawn in Western Europe, European culture, uh, being imposed upon that culture that doesn't draw it, that distinction or draws it differently, which is a topic I'm sure we'll, we'll come back to later. I'm sure in detail. Also, some people were pushing that it was actually because there was a book written and he just happened to be a friend of Leonardo's, but he, he he's the one that kind of promoted saying, you know, when his book was written, that these particular superstars, and that's they were like rock legends at the time, were, were, to, be, were to be given all the accolades and that their work was worth so much more than anything that had come before it. And, you know, so you did have specific uh, artists, sculpture, uh, sculpture um, that were set aside from other craftspeople at the time. I think also you have to blame some of it on the Industrial Revolution. You lose crafting skill massively during the Industrial Revolution and you lose the skill and craft from the people who weren't white men to a greater or lesser extent, who weren't able to pay to go to art school, who weren't able to go and learn these crafts. The, mecha the mechanisation of weaving and mm -hmm. embroidery, of clothes making, all of this sort of stuff, mass production destroyed traditional crafts and that basically removed any way of anybody outside of this inner circle of those deemed to be artists of becoming more than just a, a local guy you know they had no skill to help themselves lift themselves up and there was no you know lift himself in the 
inverted commas um yeah. you know there was no the moment you remove uh, any skill and crafting ability from art and you mechanize it you you do these massive productions you lose anybody else who's going to try essentially because they can't and it's, again it's important to point out what she said before this was you know this was definitely a european kind of thought because oh, yeah. uh, when archaeologists look at this and they look at uh, things that uh, civilizations have brought forward um you know it's known that that if it was a if it's a pretty basic kind of thing that it was used for every day. So the functionality was pretty basic. That's a craft thing. But but if it was for religious reasons, if it was used by a famous, per, you know, a, a person of um, stature in the tr- in the tribe or the civilization, then it had lots of ornamentation. And, and that's when the, the most skill was put towards it. So, so things that were as simple as a cup no longer were just a cup. It became an art form at that point, uh, you know. And, and again, uh, because a lot of archaeologists were coming out of Europe, they were just kind of you know, knocking that down, things that the, that the people themselves put forth in, you know, high regard. Yeah. There's also something to be said for, um, I believe one of the distinctions that gets drawn as well is that uh, art requires innovation and therefore like an art form changing and adapting over time, like say mm-hmm. how you go from a particular style of painting in the Renaissance to say the Expressionists or the Impressionists, and the mm-hmm. art form is being changed. Um and one of the reasons people relegate, quote unquote, um, a lot of, say, like indigenous pieces, uh, African pieces to crafts is because they see the same designs being used over and over again. And they say that there is no innovation, therefore there is no artistic merit, where the point of some of those pieces in those societies is to replicate the same patterns because they have artistic meaning and cultural uh-huh. meaning to those people. Um, so it's, yeah, placing western values upon another culture that uh, and and sort of like warping what the art was actually created for in that culture yeah <laughs> that's literally the definition of colonization that's that's i mean like seriously that's literally exactly you know um you know everything that we dealt with with i mean nigerian culture uh, you know, Ghana culture, uh, First Nations culture, you know, it, it's literally taking those types of ideas and warping them to make it seem like, you know, this this other group started off and it's like, no, you know, this stuff has literally been around for centuries. It's not brand new. It's one of those concepts that you get to see in so many different uh, fashions of creativity. Um, and I'm glad that it's being talked about now because we weren't really we didn't really have a voice to talk about this before. We weren't really allowed to talk about, you know, how a lot of different cultures, their styles, their, their arts have been stolen during the centuries because we didn't have a voice before. So Um, if you look at a lot of folk art, what essentially they are, are the arts made, made predominantly by um, community groups or community elements, which would have predominantly been, uh, women and the working class uh, in Europe, I, I can't speak for outside of Europe, unfortunately, I'm sorry, <laughs> lacking in education in that area. Um, but they were often denied access to unionization, to yeah. school groups, to higher education in any way, purely based on their their sex that often. So it's why you see incredibly skilled lace makers and you know uh, weavers and embroidery makers and all this sort of stuff 
often relegated to this category of folk art purely because they couldn't unionize and therefore demand higher pay and higher credit and higher all this sort of stuff like if you can't organize yourself and you can't demand to be taken seriously because you're constantly told no you're not good enough you're not good enough you're not good enough and we won't let you Mm. how are you ever going to you know be taken seriously and I think a lot of it isn't even necessarily down to the craft or the skill itself it's it's literally down to an element of control over we don't we don't want to take you seriously so we're not going to so but even those women who could be uh, educated they were taught the gentler arts. You know, you were allowed to do watercolors and sketching and you were encouraged to do that, but you weren't encouraged to go sell it or make a living of it. Yeah. You know, it was to be given out as gift to decorate your own home. And so, yeah, a, a lot of women, if, if they were doing anything, it was, you know, delegated and substandard to what the men at the time were putting out, according to the men. Well, and also the classist part of that, just access to resources, either in tools and materials to create your art, but also in the ability to put yourself out there to market and sell your art. Yeah, this huge classist element wherein even when, you know, we're talking about a lot of different issues, gender, ethnicity and race and class, and they all obviously intersect, but even when you do see female painters and sculptors come up um, in sort of a historical context, when women did break through in, in this context of the art form that was considered to be the masculine art form, usually they were from a privileged background. Usually they were, you know, upper middle class women um, or upwards. And because they were the ones who could afford to take the gamble on being an artist and dare to do something in the male domain. And even then those women were not taken seriously and struggled to have their art taken seriously, struggled to have their art exhibited and sold. So imagine then being a working class woman who like, it wouldn't even be in in your mind at all in those times. But to go in a slightly different direction, um, it's been brought up a little bit, modern art, conceptual art, things like that, and how that has taken the craftsmanship out of the art sphere. So now it's about the intention and the meaning and as opposed to what what skill went into creating it. Does anybody have any thoughts on that change and what we're seeing in modern art today? Um, I feel like a lot of of that, what, what fuels that conceptual art is sort of like a pure distillation of the topic I brought up before, like what was brought up during the Renaissance about individual intent and innovation um, trumping sort of craft. Um, and it's, it didn't necessarily trump craft at that time, but now it's sort of like come down to that point a little bit sometimes, mm. um, which I think is a shame, doesn't necessarily mean that all art has to exhibit those sort of traditional crafting mm-hmm. skills, but I think it's a shame that now we sort of see people look down upon art that does exhibit those skills. I would argue there's a level of how good of a business person are you? How well can you market yourself? How well can you create these pieces? And a lot of that falls on the shoulders of somebody being able to create the idea and sell the idea and then essentially uses people who are often, you know, they are creative crafters in their own right, but they're not the name. And so they are the ones who create the piece, but they're not the person who's able to sell it. And so it almost goes back to this idea of the patron uh, in the Renaissance thing that the person who 
creates the concept is the patron of the art rather than necessarily the creator, but their name gets put on it. Uh, Damien is a perfect example of this, Anthony Gormley as well. Uh, they are people, they often have huge studios of apprentices who are working under them to create these pieces. But their names are very rarely known or even mentioned in the final piece um, because, you know, they were essentially the, the tools of the, the genius. There's definitely a case of where craftsmen, some crafts, have been able to make that bridge to art. Uh, you know, originally jewelry was considered very much a craft, you know, that anybody could do it. And people like Harry Winston came out and you know, with his designs and, you know, made an art form of it. Ceramics. Um, they, there's been a lot of uh, people now that will, you know, you just buy a, buy a vase to sit and stare at it. So it's the, you know, it is the emotion, the beauty, the appreciation of it that's being sold, not the yeah. functionality of it. And, yeah. and so I think that, you know, in some areas, they've actually been able to, you know, make some progress in, in, in transitioning kind of, you know, craftsmen to art forms. But, but there's still, it seems to me when it comes to, um, to crafts that are associated with women um, and people of color, it, it's still, you know, looked down upon by, mm -hmm. by you know, our, our, the Western standards. And that goes directly into the cultural appropriation side of things. Mm -hmm. If you have a culture that has been practicing a form of weaving or a, a way of making a certain type of pottery, um, all of a sudden, somebody else comes in and says, I've studied the historical methods and now I'm creating art in this mess, in this style. Look how great I am. <laughs> you know, there's, I mean, I, I've seen it with, you know, different designers where they take, you know, different styles of either African representation of cloths or colors and try to pretend that they're the ones that they're the originators, you know, of those um, types of, of fabric or um, statues. <sighs> I don't know if you know, but in Nigerian culture, we have tons of statues, especially fertility ones. Um, and that's just because, you know, <laughs> uh, we, we just have that culture, right? They believe in polygamy and, you know, men are allowed to have as many wives as they want to, as many children as they want to, as long as they can take care of all of them. But, you know, we, we love our gods and God. So, you know, you have these depictions of these, these beings that, um, you know, took a long time to have sculpted, to have honed, to have polished, to to have these beautiful um, picturesque statues. And, you know, all of a sudden you're seeing them in, you know, colonized uh, situations and you're just like, <laughs> that looks like the one my mom got from the marketplace a couple of years ago, you know, but then you know, it's something that you can get from like a Nigerian marketplace for $15 because of the fact that like the, um, the monetization value of it, you know, the, the, I mean, the, um, the money in, in Africa is so much lower valued, you know, compared to anywhere else. So something that you can get for super inexpensive here will be sold f 10 times that, you know, somewhere else. And, and, um, you know, we still have this uh, misconception of, you know, African styles of art or, or, you know, First Nations styles of art where it's just not 
you know, you they'd rather get it from you know the colonized area compared to you know the actual then I'm mean, actually locally. So um, unfortunately, uh, appropriation is is still something that's very rampant and people recognize it, but they, I, I still honestly believe that like, if, if someone knows that it's happening, they're still going to do it anyway, you know, just because there's something in it for them. And, and that's a selfishness that needs to kind of be diminished. <laughs> so I had one topic that I wanted to talk about and I could fit or I could find no good way of transitioning nicely into it. So we're just going to stick it in here. No transition <laughs> needed. Um, we have been talking about traditional crafts like weaving and pottery and sewing and things that we're very familiar with. Um, but there are other crafts and skills that um, have been very devalued. And I think they're the cosmetic crafts and skills, particularly with hair braiding tattoo artistry, henna, um, body modifications. These are things that are largely (laughs) not considered arts anymore and also very politicized. So that was something I just wanted to bring up because there's also, we know there's racist connotations there. Absolutely. Um, Something else that's very relevant to, to both of those things is the fact that what then happens with these art forms is they become their, their, their true meaning and their original meaning and value becomes diminished in favor of them basically becoming fashion accessories. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is an issue because it leads to people adopting visual, uh, visual connotations from other cultures, such as henna or bindis or, braiding of a certain kind or you know the big the big example everyone always uses is Native American headdresses being worn at festivals and stuff like yeah. that or as um, costumes yeah or as costumes on Halloween and it I was going to bring up the idea of tattoos as well that you said so like tattoo tattooing is fascinating because during the you know while colonization was happening you know in those moments you know it was the tattoo culture of so many countries was destroyed you know the the facial markings of the Maori of the um the Philippines all this sort of stuff it it just it vanished completely like the names that the the Spanish originally gave to the Philippines I can't remember what it is in Spanish but essentially meant painted people because they were covered in tattoos um, and we white people basically just called it uncultured and you know uncivilized and all this sort of stuff and destroyed it and then wanted to take it for ourselves in a way that mm-hmm. it, you know loses its meaning uh, and that's incredibly sad but I do think that several cultures the Japanese and the Maori particularly have managed to reclaim it in such a way that it's very impressive to the point that the Maori are now designing specific Maori tattoos because every line, every dot in Maori tattooing means something like Uh every little bit. And they're now doing them for non-Maori people so that they don't use the traditional ones. They don't just go, I want a big swirly thing on my arm, you know, without knowing what it means. They're now going, we will license tattoo artists to do this style of tattoo that don't have the cultural meanings behind it. And I think that's an incredible sort of way of dealing with that, but it's also not necessarily the right right way for everybody and shouldn't be the right way for everyone. It's the way the Maori have decided to, to deal with it. And that's, you know, their choice. from within their own culture. Exactly. Uh, Whereas. Exactly. Yeah. Sorry. 
No, I, I was going to say, well, I mean, the one thing that I love about that is that they are literally taking charge of their heritage. And, and that's very important. You know, some of the people who are looking outside might be, well, maybe that's not okay. And it's like, well, it's technically not up to you. It's, it's up to them. And that's how they want to do it. You know, it's, it's, you know, kind of like, you know, how there's so many different cultures that are out there now finally taking back, you know, what belongs to them. Um, because that's the whole point of colonization, right? It's, you know, you take a culture and you literally diminished any kind of heritage that they've ever had and incorporate your own. That's it, <laughs> you know? And so, um, you know, a lot of people are trying to do their best to to learn what their culture is, what their ethnicity is. Um, and I think it's one of those things that, you know, as individuals, we just have to be appreciative as outsiders too, because, you know, those people are doing it the way that they want to handle it because people are going to do whatever they want anyway. But then on top of that, we have slightly more complicated issues such as, you know, if someone were to cosplay, say, uh, the Esmeralda. character from, from Moana or Esmeralda, yes, yeah. like that, who, they are based upon a real culture and parts of his design is based upon those real tattoos. What mm-hmm. do you do? Mm-hmm. Do you, like yeah what do you do and I think people need to put more thought into doing research into those character designs if they are choosing to replicate them and thinking about whether or not they should do it for a start yeah and trying to be more sensitive to um cultural issues around certain characters I don't think that outright white people can never cosplay a character of color but I do think some characters have certain sort of connotations to them, certain visual aspects from the culture that they are based upon that white people should not be replicating on their own bodies. Yeah. And that is an issue that needs to be better understood. Yeah. That, I mean, we were saying this, like I've seen, uh, I've seen a white woman uh, cosplay Storm and it was beautiful, right? Yeah. She did not darken her skin or anything. She had the, the beautiful, luscious white hair and the... Uh, uh, it was the the animation version um, from the 1980s, 1990s of the white jumpsuit. You know, like one uh, a single piece jumpsuit and the cape. And I was like, you go, girl. It's <laughs> like, that is so freaking phenomenal. Thank you so much for not, you know, putting well, well, on contour. Lady, I'm going to tell you that uh, I heard this said at one con and I couldn't agree more. You know, when you when you have characters like Moana or I go to a lot of anime conventions where, you know, you're having Asian characters that there are so many characters that are that are white. I mean, Mm -hmm. when we're talking about what we're doing, there's a lot to choose from. So it's like, you know, you can you can look at those kind of first. If there's one you want to do, yes, by all means. But, you know. Some people don't have that that same kind of, they don't feel like they have that same choice. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like, you know, you, you can give them a, a chance to represent themselves. That's that's the way of looking at it. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, like I, I gravitate towards characters who are of South Asian and Middle Eastern descent because that's my own part of my own background. Um, but even I am aware of the fact that I'm a light-skinned person of color and that some people might not read me as being from that background. And so yeah. I try to be sensitive about like, what is the lighting like in this photo shoot? Is it potentially possible for someone to think that I'm trying to make myself look darker? Does this character wear a bindi or henna and 
could it be interpreted that I'm a white person wearing that? And it's a shame that I have to do that because a bunch of other white people have ruined it for some actual people. Yeah! <laughs> white people ruining everything. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, but I'm glad for those, you know, people who are understanding and aware, you know, that this is an issue and that they're doing everything that they possibly can to fix it. It's a bringing up that aspect of it, how it ties back to cosplay. It actually goes really well into our next topic, which is pretty much why as cosplayers are we talking about art versus craft and why this is a conversation that we should be having in our community today. So um, I know as a sewer or sewist, when you type out sewer, it looks like sewer. So it's... (laughs) It's a word that I got to get used to sewist, but um, there tends to be some judgments about the what sewers or sewists bring to the table in cosplay. Um, Laura, I'd love to hear from you about well, uh, sewing yeah, fitting my, into my, the like cosplay. Said, my background is historical costuming, and most of my cosplays, I would say 80%, are where I take a popular character and I put it in a, uh, in a historical costume twist. Um, and, and I do, I use the, the same methods of construction that they would make in those time periods. Um, and so a lot of it is hand sewing. A lot of it is bones and lacing and, and, you know, those kind of things that are very time consuming. And I think that they're very much artful. And so it does kind of get, get you know, get to one of those things when you see um, that some people are a little dismissive because some of them are maybe not as flashy. You have to, I mean, you have to really go in with lots of beading or lots of embroidery to even get a second glance uh, compared to someone that, you know, has uh, done a big foam armor piece. And um, I'm not, you know, one is not necessarily better than the other, but I am going to say that the, the foam armor usually gets the nod if it comes down to it. It's, it, it's just kind of a, a fact of life that, that I've uh, had to deal with. Um, you want to have a judge that actually knows what they're looking at uh, in, a, in a piece. Um, if, you're, if you're a sewist, you, you know, they have to be able to appreciate that you've done all these extra things to it. We're yeah. talking about so many different kinds of crafts, leather work. Very different from sewing. Um, 3D printing has now come up, and there's a lot of difference between it. Are you gonna? Are you the one that actually rendered the 3D print to begin with? Did you program yeah. it, or did you just go to thingamajig and push a button and you let your machine work? Yeah. Those are all, you know, questions that we are beginning to face in competition. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would argue that even in cosplay, there is an element of sexism involved because <gasps> so many of sewn costumes are created by women. And many male cosplayers don't sew at all, um, or they may sew a little, but they gravitate towards armor because it's traditionally masculine, which is rubbish and stupid. And then, I mean, I'm sure Isla in a moment will go on at length about what it's like being a woman who does armor. <laughs> um, but I do think there's a huge amount of, um, you know, sexism towards people who are made, like, sewn costumes are almost always seen as less. Unless they are, like you said, incredibly over the top and, you know, massive ball gowns, all this sort of stuff, because people don't understand what goes into them. And I would almost argue that, again, that goes back to this industrialization of craft, because people just assume that you 
put it through a machine and it does it and you know it goes on the shelf and you pick it up and they have no idea and no understanding of what actually you know they don't know how their own clothes are made and so of course they don't understand what goes into making something like that and until people can learn and understand a craft for themselves they cannot appreciate it it's physically impossible unless it's big and flashy and that I think is why there is this divide of like almost a complete sort of gender divide not entirely because it's very binary and I, I don't want to go down that route but you know you see any male cosplayer who does their own sewing kind of gets you know oh my god he's so amazing he does his own sewing ah he's innovative oh my god whereas like you know uh, afab cosplayers are uh, almost always like relegated to this kind of oh well of course you did that oh yeah you're yeah. gonna make that of course you are whereas it's like it's- how male makeup gurus on youtube are so lauded for doing mm-hmm. stuff that women can just do yeah <laughs> because we do our own makeup all the time. Like, yeah. <laughs> I, I look at the big flashy costumes, even, even if we're talking sewing, big flashy sewn gowns, they are beautiful and, and incredible and they get a lot of attention. There is nothing harder than making a crotch look good on sewn pants oh or my shorts. God. Like, like <laughs> I, 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 I that, but I have. I have so if you're talking like frock coats and things, they're they're extremely, you know, getting armpits I, to look good. Oh my God! <laughs> okay, seriously, here, like, I didn't do this. Cr- oh. <laughs> I literally just finished a pair of full fronts on the other side of the room, and like literally getting full front breeches to sit right so that you do not look like you're wearing a nappy is <laughs> the hardest thing I have ever done. And I'm just like, I have so much respect for the historical enactment, like core for doing this, and like. You know, so uh, I don't know if anyone, you probably know this, Laura, but that most uh, trousers and shirts of the Regency and earlier periods are basically like triangles and rectangles and that's mm-hmm. it. Yeah. yeah. No, it's all straight sewing different. on a machine because there was no sewing machine yet. Exactly. Yeah. The machine didn't come out you know, the 1860s. So things yeah. are all pretty much even patterned. And you have piecemeal, you have peacemaking where basically yes. anybody who could come into the house, anybody who could sew could pick that garment up, even if they hadn't been making it before and keep working on it, because that's what they did when they talked, they would sew. And I will come on to learning circles and community learning and how this is done in a minute. Um, <laughs> sorry, I just wrote a whole book. But it's why like those, you know, the craft of being able to sew those pieces so precisely, I, I, it just blows my mind. And just being able to go, yeah, I can just pick this up, da, 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 do the next or bit. The hand sew buttonholes. If you can hand sew a buttonhole and it come out exactly, you, you know, that's props. That is that is a hard skill to do. Honest miracle workers. I, I, you look oh. at my machine <laughs> sewn buttonholes and you'd be like, you could work on that. <laughs> <laughs> the, the like all of us are sewing in cosplay and conflict cosplay competitions things is something that I am very interested in discussing as a woman who primarily makes armor and that's the thing I'm the most interested in and the thing I enjoy making the most armor and mold making both of which are considered to be typically more the realm of male makers Mm -hmm. um I was even once told like back when I was studying I did uh I was interested in doing some work in prosthetics departments and things um people saying things like, oh, typically women don't get hired for doing mold making because it's it's too physically demanding for women. <laughs> uh, because apparently a bag of plaster is too heavy for a woman to lift. It's not. <laughs> I absolutely agree that is definitely 
there is definitely still a sexist division within the cosplay world between mm-hmm. armor and sewing. Um, what typically, actually, not even just between armor and sewing, weirdly enough, between things that are made from materials that are hard or are meant to look hard and things that are made from materials that are soft. No wonder where that distinction was. <laughs> Um, <laughs> arts of the woman. um but yeah like it it is really interesting because for example i wonder how often female sewists or afab sewists are asked condescendingly whether they made their own costume when they are in costume at a convention because when i'm in armor it happens to me all the time yes people don't believe that i made my own armor i one time got called up uh my phone number used to be on my website I since took it off <laughs> because I realized that was a bad idea but I got called out of the blue by someone who was interested in me designing and making some armor for a project they were working on and when I answered the phone they assumed I was the assistant of the person who ran the website not the person who made the armor that was on the website um because the assumption is that women don't do that and that only men can make armor um and the there is a weird also superiority complex I come across sometimes mm-hmm. um like Laura said that the the two skills are both things that are equally challenging they're just different um there are similarities between them but they're just different skills uh, that doesn't mean one is any better than the other um but there is sometimes a superiority complex I've noticed among male armor makers who seem to believe that sewing is easy um, and as someone who struggles far more with sewing than armor, I can tell you that that is not true. I am in awe of the things that Ollie can do. I am in awe of the things that plenty of like, I'm in awe of plenty of sewing costumes that I have judged in contests. Um, I think partly one of the issues could be um, the fact that with with armor, especially with foam, it can be relatively not easy but it can be relatively quick to get to a point where you can make a costume that looks very big and impressive from a distance but up close the foam work isn't actually as like intricate and well done as it could be mm-hmm. um, and I'm someone who likes to be very sort of like intricate and get down to like really minor details with my armor making um, and you do often see some armored cosplayers who get upset about something that is just a dress winning a competition when that just a dress is extremely technical to make contains a lot of detail maybe like hand embroidery beading Mm -hmm. feels like that like boning stuff like that um and just because a costume is big doesn't mean it's a better costume if an armored costume is huge and extremely well made then absolutely yeah that is like hugely technical in and of itself but just because a costume at a distance at a glance appears to be big doesn't mean that that costume has more technical skill put into it than just a dress yeah. Well, I find that in competition, I always have to go to the competitions. If I'm going to enter, I have to enter a competition that definitely has prejudging where you can go in and, and show that something is, you know, boned and lined and all those kind of small things that you can't tell from a stage. I, I, I quit doing those kind of things where you just walk out on the stage years ago because you there's you just don't have a chance if you're a sewist. You, you know, um, yeah. even if you right have you. that's pretty yeah. good. But still, it doesn't, it doesn't stack up to the bigger armor things. I also think there is a, a classist aspect of what we're seeing in cosplay because 
I am very proud of the fact that I'm a budget cosplayer. I make stuff out of literal trash and because that's what I can afford. That's what I have access to. But but there is the 3D printed or molded or I use the high density foam. I mean, there's there's a lot of emphasis on these high level, high cost materials and processes these days. And those are seen as valuable. Those are seen as high tech. Mm. There is, mm. I can make something that looks incredible out of trash. I've done it. Literal trash. I can't afford a 3D printer. It's off. But I, I have a 3D printer in my library. I'm a school librarian. I have access to one. Yeah. It takes no skill to look up something on thingamajigs and, and, and send it to the printer. It's, it's just like making a copy on your copier. It, yeah. it, it takes no skill. Now, yes, you still have to sand it, sometimes fill it, and paint it. Paint it, but, yeah. But, you know, it, it, it takes very little skill to do that. Now, I see there's a lot of skill if you actually have to design. design. Yeah. Yes. That, that, that I see as a real skill. But the, the fact that you can, and we have so many people now that you can set, buy cosplay um, uh, thingamajigs. Uh, you know, to do your, to do everything you need to, you know, uh, say, uh, you know, the, the Sailor Moon groups, you know, they have, you can get all this stuff now. You don't have to make it. You just have to 3D print it. Yeah. When I'm judging contests and someone comes in with a 3D printed prop or weapon or some other kind of piece, I always ask whether they modeled it themselves, mm. whether they sanded it themselves and whether they painted it themselves. Um, because, yeah, you're absolutely right that there is a distinction to be made between uh, modeling something yourself and printing something yourself. I think you're going to get it from a craft point of view as well, from like the idea of classism. Fabric's a lot cheaper. Fabric is so much cheaper. You can screw up the fabric on polycotton and it costs you a dollar. You know, that's it. You, it doesn't matter. You can screw up as many times as you want on a piece of fabric and it won't break your bank. Sure, when you get to the final thing where you're using velvet or whatever this nonsense is behind me. Um, (laughs) Are you silk? Yes, he's silk. (laughs) Um, um, But, you know, you get to that final thing and yes, that fabric at the final final production may be expensive, but you can learn and make mistakes and do your entire journey as uh, through like, your from your very baby basic on polycotton or something, or bed sheets, anything, you know, and you can make all those mistakes and it's fine whereas I find and it, I think it's something that has personally put me off from armor making I'm a kinesthetic learner I screw up on armor and yeah I can remold it and all that sort of stuff but also that's cost me a lot of money and if I, I can't fix it I can't salvage it I've got to buy more it's got to be posted to me all this sort of stuff it's it's not as readily available yeah. um, and I think that is an element of classism involved in in saying that like oh, just because you're making stuff out of sewing is really easy, it's just fabric put together and not understanding that actually that may be the only craft that's available to somebody because they physically can't afford to buy foam. Even, you know, if you're talking like yoga mats or something like that, it's it's not very much for a relatively large amount of money. Where you go to your local charity shop, you can buy bed sheets, curtains, uh, thrift store, sorry for Americans, um, you, know, <laughs> um, you know, bed sheets, curtains, all that kind of stuff. For You could get maybe... I've definitely got 40 meters worth of stuff from a charity shop before for two pounds. Mm. Like you, you're not going to break the bank learning that skill. I've got miles of Velveteen for $5, $5. Yeah. 
Um, and also importantly, like referring to classism again, sewing is a skill that is often passed down to people from a parent or another yep. relative. Whereas armor making is something you either figure out for yourself by watching YouTube tutorials, or if you're like me, you went and studied theatre design and part of your education involved talking about mold, learning about mold making Molding. and foam work and things like that. Um, so there, there is a difference again, where sewing is a skill that is passed down community, communally, whereas armor making is very much the, within the realm of sort of, are you a professional going into a certain field? Yeah. Um, and as well, I think there's also a class distinction. You mentioned 3D printing before and we sort of touched on that, but I also noticed there is, even within the realm of armor, which is already sort of, there's already this distinction between armor and sewing that's made often. But even within the realm of armor, I'm starting to see more and more people, people basically assuming that 3D printing something makes it automatically superior to making something by hand out of foam or warbler, which isn't the case. 3D printing is great. I don't mean to bag on 3D printing. I want to learn how to do it and buy a 3D printer someday. <laughs> but just because it's, this cool new piece of technology doesn't automatically make it superior to a crafting skill that people have been using for a long time. There are merits to both of them. Um, and foam is cheaper than a 3D printer. Yeah. And there and is the also, I'm gonna put a little ad in here right now, a little commercial, because libraries and other places are starting to make maker spaces where yeah. you can go and use their equipment. And, um, you know, you have to bring your own supplies usually, but usually have somebody that there to teach you how to use a sewing machine, teach you how to use a 3D printer, um, you know, and uh, will help you get started on the basics anyway. And it's, mm -hmm. it's free, at least here, here in the States. I mean, community learning circles are in the basis of any craft. The community getting together and teaching each other and being the ones who make makers, bakers, make stitch and bitch, whatever you want to, you know, whatever you have, whatever you do, crochet bombing things. Those are the spaces that create and preserve craft. And the cosplay community, I don't think they understand that they have made one massive international linked via the internet makers space and yeah. learning community. Like we share and throw things at each other all the time and the circle of education that cosplayers give to each other is akin to like a pre-industrialization all of you know the way that you know you would get around your whole village would go and you know learn how to make that thing and all that sort of stuff it would be like that and the cosplay community is that and I'm so glad we've got over this whole I'm not going to tell you how I learned how to do this you've got to do it for yourself Actually, yeah. oh my God, get that out the window nobody wants that like <laughs> it makes things so much easier for people like it I just straight up tell people stuff I was taught at my degree because I'm like you shouldn't have to pay nine thousand pounds a year to learn this I know it's so expensive in America as well so like uh, um like yeah like share that knowledge because yeah. it enriches everyone and that's literally like those sort of those sort of like communal uh like communal sharing circles of learning different like arts and crafts skills. Um, that is literally, we literally have a version of that now on things like YouTube and Twitter where people are sharing tutorials about how they make things like that. It's literally that, but digital. Yeah. I mean, she probably I do that. Is that. Yeah, I do that in real life too. As somebody who does a lot of the traditional crafts, quilting, um, knitting, crochet, there are crochet circles. You can go to them. Basically yeah. every yarn store has one yeah. or knitting circles. And yeah. I spent my formative years in the basement of a church in my hometown, <laughs> sewing with all the old ladies because we would make quilts and 
you know, it's, it's still something like, I love the digital sphere, but it's also something that is still in person or pre-pandemic. We'll be, we'll be someday again. Yeah, we'll be someday again. Even like, your local yeah. church basement. <laughs> There's probably somebody sewing in that basement. Yeah. <laughs> well, like in the, after the end of the 60s, early 70s, I know in the United States, that was a big push for coming back to crafts. I mean, that's when the, you know, the communes were kind of big. And so people were doing things like macrame and, and, uh, you know, um, fixing up your jeans with all kinds of embroidery on them. And, uh, you know, so it kind of, it kind of worked out that, that that resurgence also ended up that's when the Ren Fair started coming out. Yeah. That's when uh, reenacting started, you know, building back up. I said that that end of the 60s, beginning of the 70s, there was a big push for, for arts and crafts and skills of that kind. Yeah. And it's also hugely beneficial socially to the community that, that takes part in it. And to yeah. me, even you could even make an argument for the act of going to a convention being like the social situation in which you would all go and stitch and bitch or whatever. Yeah. Um, obviously you're not necessarily making things at the convention but you're presenting the work you've done it is an act of like showing the crafting skills that you have to other people who are also showing you the crafting skills that they have yeah. and it's hugely valuable I think one it's thing one I did want to about competing is that when you're backstage while you're waiting for those couple of hours you know is is changing oh how did you do that and there and yeah. everybody I've met is really open to, to telling you yeah yeah the backstage talking to other per- performers and costumers is my favorite part of competing. Yeah. Same. <laughs> <laughs> the one thing I did want to talk about is, you know, even if we're taking the craft part of it out of the conversation, we are still seeing a lot of elitism and yeah. stratifying kind of language in the cosplay community with just the term cosplay. I have had people bag on me for using that term to describe myself like choosing artists or customer or any number of things that is considered better than being a cosplayer is, am I the only one that has experienced that? Does anybody else have? I have definitely experienced that. I have experienced what's really interesting. So I am very much somebody who believes in this idea of the costuming hobbies as a umbrella term for, you know, that's cosplay, that's LARP, that's historical reenactment. I'd even throw drag in there. Um, I'm sure some drag artists would have a go at me for that, but it, it's an essentially a very similar kind of hobby. You create things, you wear it, you perform in some element. Um, and But the fact that many historical reenactors, especially in the UK, I don't know what it's like in the States, um, would be like, cosplay, I'm nothing to do with it. I hate that. There's an elitism even within those elements, let alone just cosplay itself, where you have people who are like, no, I'm a this no I'm a that because oh I don't want to be like the weebs so I'm not a cosplayer I'm a costumer and you're like oh for goodness sake we'll just know (laughs) and it's like I I get wanting to be part of your tribe or whatever but your tribe's big now like come on your tribe is mainstream now (laughs) (laughs) your tribe is all night go away Uh, (laughs) I find it fascinating at that like the historical reenactment group and the LARPers and the cosplayers are like, no, we're separate. And you're like, no, we're not. We're definitely yeah. not. <laughs> like, we're not because I know a lot of cosplayers who also do a historical reenactment. Exactly. And Same. And drag. Yeah. It's yeah. interconnected. <laughs> and you can't say that they haven't influenced each other either. Like, cosplay has massively influenced LARP. LARP has massively influenced the way the historical reenactments are done. And the historical reenactment and the... the um, 
pres preservation of traditional crafting has like inspired cosplayers and drag art. Like you, you literally cannot and take the definitions away from each other. And so to be elitist within it is stupid. Um, my, my son used to tease my husband that he was an original LARPer because he's a reenactor. He says, well, no, he says, I'm not. He says, what? Well, no, you're a live action role player. You are a... And I have to tell you, I, I kind of uh, tricked my husband into getting into cosplay through steampunk because, you know, it was kind of like, you're going to be reenacting, but a future Victorian is what you're going to be reenacting. And now he will come with me and now he'll even say the word cosplay. But for a yeah. while, you're very right. It was, you know, it was a, a no, I am a, I am a reenactor. You know, that was, that was his stance. Yeah, I definitely. All of my makeup skills and wig skills from drag queen tutorials. Oh. <laughs> all of them. Why did you watch anybody else? The best? <laughs> I'm, I think a lot of it um, gets and ends up getting lost in translation. Um, Working more on film sets, uh, I tend to, coming from the place of a cosplayer, I tend to try to hire more cosplayers, um, you know, because they have the ability. I know a crap ton of amazing cosplayers who should be getting paid the same rates as, as costumers, you know, here. Uh, and in the Pacific Northwest, you find more cosplayers who are just amazing at crafting or at least amazing at sewing um, compared to, uh, you know, people who are, are, are costumers because um, cosplayers understand the idea of where you're going when you're trying to envision like certain outfits, especially if you have the mind of a cosplayer, I think, at least for me. You know, I'm glad that like it's finally starting to translate, but it didn't before you know especially on the bigger non-independent film sets um like the hollywood style film sets you know you 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 know would get these people who had no idea what they were doing sometimes um so i've always just you know gone in the benefit of like you know looking at my friends and saying hey you know would you like to work on a film set um, we'll pay you the same rate, $500 a day or whatever, depending on, um, you know, what all they're doing. You only have to be on set for like three or four hours, you know, to make sure you get your costumes back, <laughs> come back at the end of the day. Uh, and, and, but that's it, you know, just because they need, they need the work just as much as customers do too. So. Yeah. It's been it, interesting for me that the sort of language distinction and judgment that's placed upon certain words as someone who, has been cosplaying for so long mm. and then pivoted into doing costume design yeah. uh, for theatre, mainly theatre, but also for film as well. Um, when I was at drama school, I, there was some sort of low-key, sometimes a bit high-key, judgment towards the fact that I had a cosplay background, um, which makes no sense because I applied to the school with cosplay in my portfolio and they loved it and they gave me an unconditional offer. So like... Why are you then going to go be judgmental about it after that? <laughs> um, but there, yeah, there was sort of some people who would say, you know, if you're going to apply for a job, maybe don't mention the cosplay thing. And I was like, but why though? And <laughs> it wasn't all bad. It wasn't all judgmental. But like, there wasn't certainly an element of like, okay, that's what you did for a hobby when you were a teenager, and now you don't do that anymore because now yeah. You're an adult now, so <laughs> stop that. <laughs> yeah, but the interesting thing is that when I graduated and started working in the industry, 
I actually got work off the back of either being a cosplayer or skills I had learned from primarily from cosplay. Um, I got work on a film last year as the production and costume designer of like a short indie film about Boudicca based on showing this director pictures of my Cassandra cosplay because I was like, look, I can, I can make armor. I also design armor. Like I am the person for this project. Yeah. And, and so I was hired for it. Um, I do a lot of work on sort of like post-apocalyptic sci-fi genre stuff because they like hiring people who clearly have an interest in those genres and understand the workings of those genres and who better to hire than someone who has cosplayed from those genres before. Um, And, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that any cosplayer can then just like jump onto a film set and, and be like a working costumer on a film set. There is like a certain like level of skill you would need. Um, But there definitely shouldn't be this like judgment placed upon it where it's like, cosplayers are over here and it's just a hobby and everyone in there it's just like, <laughs> one doesn't actually know what they're doing yeah and we have the professionals over here and it there is so much crossover I know so many cosplayers who work as either costume designers or costume makers uh prop makers prop designers um and the more different jobs I do in theatre and film the more I meet nerds on every single set I go on to the, like honestly <laughs> um they all have to do with, you know, like, why did we come into cosplay? Well, I know for me, I was a nerd back when. Most people I know that are in cosplay were nerds back then, mm-hmm. uh, you know. And and so it, it, it's, it's a little striking to me that when we get to this place where we can be ourselves, then there are many people who are still trying to divide us up. Mm-hmm which you, you would think that like, we've already went through that. That, that was, you know, that was middle school. We don't have to go through that anymore. I think there's a massive historical precedent for it though. Like even if you go back to the beginning of fandom as a defined thing, which is sort of the 1920s, 1930s, when we really see fandom as a thing. Again, I've just written a book. It's all in my head. I'm really sorry. <laughs> the first cosplayer is a woman, right? She's a woman and she makes stuff for her and her boyfriend. They turn up at the con and he's famous because he's well-known and he's a writer and all this sort of stuff. And so all of that credit goes to him, all of it, mm-hmm. right? But at the time... The people who were there were like, what's this woman doing? We don't like this. She's not taking it seriously. And it's that same thing of like, you're not taking the thing seriously. You're not doing it the way we want you to do it. I just hit my mic. Uh, (laughs) You know, it's that same attitude of, I think that's why cosplayers get relegated often to this kind of weirdo set because you're not doing it in the way that the establishment wants you to do it. You're doing it in your own way. And that is something that predominantly I would say you know, minority groups, again, in inverted commas, they're not actually minorities, um, have, like, they do. They do it in a way that the powers that be don't want them to do it. And therefore, it's a hobby or it's a craft or it's, a, it's um, you know, primitive or any of these things. It's not proper. And I mm. think that almost is the heart of the problem is that it's not what is expected or wanted from you and so how dare you do it you know mm-hmm. let alone anything else I think I think inherently that's what it comes down to is you're not doing it how we want you to do it and therefore we're going to uh, you know tell you off basically like yeah. multi children I think there's an interesting link there to the idea of like transformative fandom versus cum- uh, curative fandom this idea that very often not always but very often uh, sort of more like cis, straight, white, male spaces within fandom are 
uh, curative fandom spaces where they collect information. And so the value is placed on how many things about Star Trek can you remember, which is fine. Um, but very often female POC queer spaces within fandom are transformative where they're taking the thing that they like and they are adapting it in some way, maybe because they don't see themselves represented in it, or maybe because women traditionally are the ones who are doing these sort of craft skills. And so you see things like fan fiction, fan art and cosplay being predominantly female dominated spaces and queer dominated spaces. Um, and then there is sort of this judgment placed upon them from the get go within fandom. There's already this division of like, I think it happens less so now, but people very much, when I started cosplaying, people very much started, very much looked down upon cosplay. Um, and there's this idea that, you know, fan art is lesser than some other forms of art, even though for hundreds of years, Western art was predominantly fan art of the Bible and Greek <laughs> mythology, basically. Yeah. <laughs> the same yeah. thing. <laughs> um, I think yeah, so you there's, there's the this value judgment placed upon it where because it's seen as feminine, it's seen as lesser from the get-go, even before you get to all these divisions within cosplay itself. Mm. We are getting close to, well, not getting. We have gone way over time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. So I got an hour and a half now for my hour-long panel. Um, so we do need to wrap it up. But we're kind of there already anyway, which is just the big takeaway. What is the takeaway that we want people to have for this panel and what we've been talking about today. And Laura, let's start with you. <laughs> I think that I think the thing that I would like people to get is that what we do, uh, whether we're a sewist or an armor maker, whatever, what, what we do, it has value and it mm -hmm. requires skill and it requires artistry. When I look at a well done piece of embroidery, uh, I, I get hot and bothered. I'm telling you that it is it is an art form because art is about emotion and it gives me emotion. So there you go. And and Ollie. Um, I mean, I definitely agree with that. That's excellent. I would say that the thing to take away is do not underestimate what people are doing. Even if you look at something incredibly simple, simple. Again, we'll throw in the air quotes in there and you don't get it, that doesn't mean that that person hasn't put a huge amount of passion and drive into that. And also, you don't know what that person is trying to do and learn and convey with that piece. But if you can take some of that away from it, and you can take some of the emotion that they felt in it, they've done it right. And that's art, basically. It doesn't matter whether it's a costume or a pot or a painting of a damned horse. Um, <laughs> you know... It's art, and if you got something from it, great, excellent, wonderful, I love it. <laughs> and Abby? Um, I think it's very important to be cognizant of, of where certain pieces are coming from, um, especially if you feel the need to imitate it. Uh, so I think it's very important to research, ask questions, um, and make sure that you are showing appreciation instead of appropriation. And Issa. Oh my God. I mean, you've all said such wonderful things already that I completely agree with. <laughs> and I'll just echo those points entirely. Um, I think also be, be curious and questioning of what you have been socialized to consider to be art and look into other avenues and 
other sort of art forms um, and just like expand your horizons in that way. I, like I said earlier, we, we miss out on so much by burying certain parts of history. Yeah. Um, and I think like if I can drop sort of like a recommendation for sort of an easy way to do that, there's a really good Twitter account called at women's art one, like the number one. Um, where they post obviously works exclusively by female artists but something I really love about that account is that it as well as posting painters and sculptures and photography they also share things like quilting and embroidery and pottery and there's a lot of stuff by indigenous artists and stuff like that Um, so I just think yeah like thinking more about ways to expand your definitions of art um, and showing appreciation for the craft that goes into art is so valuable Well, and my big takeaway is I want people to stop shying away from calling themselves artists. I have so many cosplay friends that do incredible things and, and they use every definition to describe themselves except artist and just claim it. Just Mm -hmm. if you're creating art, call yourself an artist. Just do it. It's not a bad word. There's no, or well, people try to gatekeep, but don't let them. Yeah. Don't let them gatekeep that term. Use it if it if you if you see yourself in that light, then use that term for yourself. Um, and to wrap up, I want everyone to go around just one more time. Tell us your name, where we can find you on social media, and if you do have an additional final thought, throw that in there too. And we'll go in the same order that I just went in. So, Laura, let's start with you. Uh, hi, uh, uh, or goodbye, as the case may be. I'm Laura Lada. Uh, at, at Nana Cosplay 1957, that was the year I was born, on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, and uh, it was good talking to you guys. I learned a lot here. Uh, I'm Ollie, and you can find me at um, <clears throat> at Littlest Prince on Instagram or at The Cosplay Journal. I'm more commonly on at The Cosplay Journal um, at this point in my life. And um, I kind of, I want to just, I want everybody to stay curious, be curious of everything you come into contact with and try and learn to understand it. And if you can't be open to the possibility that you, you don't understand it and that's fine. Like just be curious of everything. Um, my name is Abby Ekenezer. I am at Babs Ek 79 on all of the medias, Twitter, uh, Instagram, and uh, Facebook. And uh, my main takeaway is, is just be appreciative. You know, ask questions, talk to friends, because uh, your friends will even appreciate you more for it. And then um, learn you know, and, and see yourself as an actual connoisseur because that's ex- exactly what you're doing. Uh, so I'm Isa and you can find me at Evil Clever Dog on Twitter and Instagram. <laughs> you all just said all the things I believe. Yeah, be curious and be appreciative and be cognizant of where something comes from if you're adapting something from other culture, please. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm Abby of Abby Cat Cosplay. You can find me there on Instagram and Facebook. And you can find all of us in the SheProp community. So come and join the SheProp community. We would be so happy to have you. You can follow our YouTube channel. Um, we These panels are also released as podcasts, as well as some really interesting interviews with incredible makers. So please join us there. And the links will be in the notes. And thank you all. Thank all of the panelists today for joining us. 
I'd also like to thank Monica of Geeks A Go for our graphics and Mia May of Mia May Cosplay for doing the editing. And once again, thank you. And bye. 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 <laughs>